While 19th century literature made whaling sound exciting and heroic, the reality was often a lot less romantic. What do you mean? The long hours, the great food? What's not to love on a whaling ship? <laughs> well, let's just say years at sea, uh, really dangerous conditions on deck, uh, uncertain pay. I mean, those aren't the best selling points, but some people saw it as an opportunity. And whaling was appealing to many black men with few other alternatives ashore. Some mm. were already free, but others were trying to escape slavery. So just so we're clear, they went from being enslaved to being stuck on a whaling ship. Well, they were paid a small share of any profit, but the question of whether whaling was a means of escape or further imprisonment lies at the heart of the black whaling experience. So New England's sort of intimately involved in the transatlantic slave trade, sending ships over to uh, collect slaves, uh, to purchase slaves and bring to the Caribbean and then up along the, the east coast of the United States. That's Jeffrey Fortin, associate professor of history at Emanuel College. You know, as 18th century sort of wears on and New Englanders begin to question the morality of slavery, especially Quakers who were particularly involved in the slave trade early on in funding it, they begin to think, you know, maybe this isn't exactly what, you know, God may find as being ethical. And so at this same sort of moment, there's a lot of overlap. That is that whaling ships out of New England followed similar transatlantic routes as earlier slave ships. And there are even a few horrific instances of ships leaving New England as a whaling ship, picking up slaves in Africa and dropping them off in South America before returning home. I had no idea. So did whaling ships perpetuate similar types of racism that people of color would have experienced on land? Not necessarily. Ships were a bit of reprieve from racism based on a kind of meritocracy. Mostly because, well, everyone is stuck on a ship together for a pretty long stretch of time, and they had to depend on each other to do their jobs. If they did their jobs well, they won respect and gratitude. You know, the Native Americans, for example, in their journals, when they're on land, discuss race all the time. When they're on board ships, you know, ideas and, and discussions about race sort of take back uh, the back seat. And so you can see that on board the ships— there maybe wasn't equality, but there certainly was a leveling effect that uh, persons of color experienced. Interesting. But did whaling ever help people of color access greater opportunities back on the land? Sometimes it did. For the earliest and perhaps most striking example, we can turn to the story of Paul Cuffey. So Paul Cuffey was born in Cuttyhunk, um, which is a small island that's a part of the chain of the Elizabethan Islands in Buzzards Bay, which is on, it's, it's right next to Cape Cod, but it doesn't get quite the, the fanfare as Cape Cod does today. And he was born to uh, a former enslaved African man named Kofi and uh, a Wampanoag, his Wampanoag mother. Kofi shows incredible promise and determination from a very early age. He does become literate, uh, at the very least during his teenage years, uh, where he takes over his father's exercise book, which is a book that you would use to practice writing in. And so when his father dies, when he's about 14, he takes that book over and teaches himself how to write. But Cuffey quickly realizes that being literate won't be enough to give him a shot at success. And so he sets his sights on whaling as a means to become a self-made man. He actually, uh, as a teenager, does go to, uh, to the sea on a whale voyage, uh, whaling voyage to the Gulf of Mexico. And on this voyage, he sort of gets a sense of, of what the possibilities are. And he ends up on another voyage in the Gulf of Maine, 
Um, and from there, he takes his earnings and buys the hardware to build his first ship called the Ranger. So he's basically going from being a whaler to being an entrepreneur. Absolutely, Brian. And just as important, Cuffey comes to believe in the Quaker values he's encountering and becomes convinced that he has an equal stake in the society emerging around him. Uh, one of his whaling voyages, he is said to have killed five or six whales himself as the ship's captain. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I, I think there was a little bit of uh, aggrandizement there, but, but you know, this he can see that power and and the money certainly that could be made, um, but also that he could go out there and demonstrate that he had the skill and the abilities to do the same thing that other whalers did. And so when the time comes to further his own ambitions and to help create a society in which ambition like his can be rewarded, he joins the American Revolution. Then he also takes another step in, in, in joining the cause, if you will, in building a small dory, uh, which is a little rowboat, and rowing out through Buzzards Bay to Martha's Vineyard and providing Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket Islands with supplies because they're being squeezed out by the British blockade. You know, he does. He is celebrated in, in newspapers. One of the stories that newspapers always tell about him when, when discussing him is his are his daring raids, uh, you know, at night through Buzzards Bay to get supplies to fellow patriots. Cuffey was actually captured and held prisoner by the British during one of these risky trips. So it sounds like even as an African-American, he had just as much stake in the country getting free. Well... Not really. <laughs> he, he believed in it, but he couldn't vote. But he was determined to try to hold America up to its ideals. Uh, he writes a few petitions along with his brother and, and a couple other uh, men of color in his hometown of Dartmouth, which later becomes Westport, Massachusetts, uh, demanding, you know, the right to vote. And if, you know, is essentially arguing if you're not going to give us the right to vote, then we shouldn't pay taxes. Seems like I've heard that somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Brian. Cuffey was trying to hold America up to the ideals espoused by the patriots a few years earlier during the Boston Tea Party. You might say it's Cuffey's attempt at a black tea party. <laughs> well, that's a terrible pun, Nathan, and his petitions <laughs> didn't yield immediate success. They may have helped sway public opinion, but it was another 20 years until free black men won the right to vote in Massachusetts, all the way in 1800. Mm. Yeah, uh, two decades is a heck of a long time to wait, but we got to point out that's still well in advance of a lot of other African-Americans in the new nation. Certainly. But Cuffey continued to feel the harsh sting of racism throughout his life, despite all that he accomplished. Then he comes back from a voyage and his ship gets impounded by the American government because of the War of 1812 and the Embargo Act. And he travels to Washington, D.C. to meet with the Secretary of State to try to get his ship back. And on his way out of D.C., he goes on onto a, gets on board a stagecoach, and he's relegated to the back back of the stagecoach. So, you know, it's a it's a sort of a harsh reality, if you will, of what his status really was. And this was probably the wealthiest African American in, in America at that point, if not close to it. Um, and here he is, still sitting, you know, in the back of a stagecoach. And toward the end of his life, Cuffey started worrying about how newly freed slaves would be able to support themselves in America. So he had a proposal for what he thought newly free black men could do. He encouraged them to go whaling. 